Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 23. A special thank you to my patrons who get the shows early and with bonus content. Today's guest is Giovande Jones, an actor, director, and educator based in Brooklyn. He has directed Stephen Adley Girgis's Mother Effer with the Hat and Susan Laurie Park's In the Blood. Gio has also directed concerts and operas, as well as coached opera singers on acting. As an actor, he has been in Lynn Nottage's Sweat and Terrell Alvin McCraney's The Brother Size. Currently, Gio's on faculty at the People's Improv Theater teaching scene study from the BIPOC perspective and is adjunct faculty at Brooklyn College and the City College of New York, where he developed the popular course entitled Theater and Racism. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Giovande Jones, to the podcast. Thank you, Ethan. And also, you are known as Gio Jones. Yes, yes. Assuming you're all right with it, I'm going to use Gio throughout today. Yes, please do. Because <laughs> I can't disassociate Gio from you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, and also before we get started, I want to mention for the listeners in the future, we're recording on September 28th, 2020. So we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and then also the Black Lives Matter reawakening throughout the universe. Yeah, yes, yes, we are. Um, can you give us sort of a brief recap of your life and career to where you are today? I am an actor, director, coach, and educator. Most recently, I am more of an educator than anything else. Second, directing because of COVID and quarantine. I, I haven't worked outside of my home for about eight months now, maybe seven months or so. I am teaching a full course load between um, two colleges and um, an acting studio here in New York, all online, virtual. Right now, I guess, yeah, I'm mostly an educator, teaching acting and theater and racism, a course that I developed with City College. I'm also teaching scene study, focusing on stories from Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, their stories, and working as an actor here in the city for a couple of years now after attending an MFA in acting program at Brooklyn College. Before that, I spent about eight years in the city as an actor, director, off and on, working in a completely different field, working in security, uh, while trying to pursue this thing that I stopped pursuing for quite a bit of time. <laughs> and, and that was just after attending Missouri State University, where you and I met. Before Missouri State, I lived and grew up in St. Louis. I... Ethan, you're from St. Louis. I'm from St. Charles, yeah. Yeah, you're from St. Charles. My sister now lives in St. Charles. Oh, yeah? Where? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you where. I, I haven't lived in St. Louis since I was an undergraduate student. My sophomore year of undergrad, I was like, wait, I can't live at home with family anymore because there's no space and I'm a different person. So I've lived in Springfield and then here. Yeah, I haven't lived in St. Louis in what feels like 15 or so years. But when I did live in St. Louis, 
I live mostly on South City, around the Botanical Garden area. And at one point, my family, we lived in North County, where my mother still lives. That's where my dad is from. What part of North County? Uh, Blackjack. Blackjack. Okay, yeah, I know Blackjack. My mother now lives in, um, well, we used to live in Castle Point, but she now lives in... um, Riverview Forest and something like that. I, I'm I'm very much unfamiliar <laughs> with St. Louis. That's cool. That's cool. We had we had a designer that worked a lot in St. Louis named Kathy Perkins. She worked at the Black Rep. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, like, there's nobody else from that area that I've had on so far. I, you know, we almost moved closer to St. Louis. This was a few months ago. I was offered a position at Eastern Illinois University because of COVID, we were like, uh, what are we going to do? And full-time faculty position. It's like, well, I'm not acting or directing right now because of COVID. So how did you resist that? What made you stay in Brooklyn? St. Louis, St. Louis has family. The full-time faculty position sounded very nice. The tipping point was they wouldn't cover my moving costs, which is close to $10,000. And we decided not to murder our savings account by moving most universities will cover moving cost or at least give you a great deal on that but also with what i was bringing as the only person of color that would have been on their faculty they were gaining so much by bringing me on that they they should have i mean they negotiated up or or they came up on the negotiation for the salary yeah there were other things that they just couldn't match and so Brooklyn won. <laughs> All right. I'm glad we kept you. Well, or not, whatever. <laughs> Me too. Me too. No, I am too. In the end, we, Ashley and I both were, Ashley, my wife, and I were both thinking, um, do we really want to move to the Midwest? And it was a small town at that. Okay. Not to obsess over this Missouri connection, but it's, it's exciting to have somebody from the same, like, like we do completely separate things and lead completely separate lives, but our life paths are not all so different really, because we both came from Missouri and we both moved to New York and we work in theater and sorry to go back a little bit. When you were at Missouri State and you were studying to be an actor, was your plan to move to New York? Was it to stay? in Springfield? Was it to go back to your family in St. Louis? Um, did, did you have that plan yet then? Or, or what made you move to New York? You know, it was actually an evolving plan. Before I decided to study theater, the plan was always to go back to St. Louis. With theater, things changed. And actually, um, the plan was to stay in Springfield for a couple of years, save up some money, move to Chicago, feel it out, and then move to New York. A good friend of mine, who you also know, Stacy Parker-Joyce, she said, well, if you go to Chicago, you won't go to New York. If your ultimate goal is to go to New York, then just go. Go to New York. So yeah, after undergrad, I was miserably in Springfield. <laughs> Even though I love Springfield, I'd rather raise a family in Springfield over St. Louis. But it wasn't what I needed at that time. It wasn't, there was so much discrimination that was happening that depressed the hell out of me. And so um, about two to three years after undergrad, I lived in Springfield, 
before moving here to New York. So, and just to update you on, on my life, because, you, you know, we, like, we know each other, we were in the same classes in school, but, like, we didn't interact, you know, because you're so busy in college and stuff. After Missouri State, I went down to Dallas for three years, and then I moved to New York. It's sort of the same path in the sense of, I've learned all this training to move to New York, but I'm, I'm not ready. Like, I don't have enough money saved, and I'm not ready, and so, like, I, I delayed it by three years to get my mindset in, in the place of, yep, I'm gonna move there and live there and work there. I, I love something that you just said, um, I wasn't ready. And that was the same thing for me. I went a little off of what I should have done. I lived here for about seven years, trying to do the thing, but I wasn't ready. And so I was doing a lot of it wrong. If I were to go back in time, I would come up to college in New York. If I knew I was going to work in New York, like if, if I had made that decision early on, be like, I'm going to go to Broadway, man, I, I would have come to college here, any college, and just worked. Because frankly, the jobs and the work outside of your classes are more valuable than your classes, not to dismiss higher education, because many people need it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and no, you're absolutely right. Getting the MFA here in the city was so instrumental in the connections I have now. I wouldn't have made these connections here. Uh, acting programs, I do not understand why folks go to MFA programs in the middle of the country because those connections just simply aren't there. Of course, there's a thousand decisions that go into everything. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And also, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. Yeah. All of us in our own lives, we look back five years, ten years, and it's like, oh, what I didn't even know then, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, trust me. Demographics. Can you describe your demographics for me? I, we picked a little bit of them up. We can start with, with something that's the most important thing to me. I am black. I don't always refer to myself in what the PC world is now talking about, and that's this idea of person of color. Obviously, I am a person of color, but I am black. There is something that is completely different about that identification, proudly so. You know, there have been surveys and such where I've checked off African American right. when that's the only option. Yeah. My ancestors were enslaved in this country, and so by that, I, I suppose African-American also fits in. That's the very brief explanation of who I am. I'm 35. I am a male. My gender pronouns are he, him, his. My wife and I have been married 10 years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. And I want to I inject a, a side note that you two... We're together a long time before you got married, but you are both very hard workers. And this is something I remember because I saw you guys on campus. And again, we didn't interact totally. I was off doing lighting. You were off doing acting and dancing. But I did see you guys and you guys were always working. And you were actually often together working a lot, actually. But I just remember your work ethic just stuck out to me for both of you because it was like these people are like just hard workers like they're, they're the real deal like they are dedicated to what they're doing no thank you for that we are hustlers man sometimes to the detriment of my um general education courses i would put my theater courses place more emphasis on that and spend more time doing that i was always doing a million projects after you know being in a relationship and 10 years of marriage, an advanced degree and different training programs because, you know, I actually went off into the yoga world. We decided to start a family 
And now we have seven-month-old Clemmy. Yeah. She was born right before quarantine. Happened. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we've been spending a lot of time at home with her. <laughs> sort of a conveniently good thing, a positive thing yeah. maybe to come out of this whole thing is that. It is. And, and child care is free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we're doing it ourselves. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm so happy because you guys are, like, in the thick of your careers right now. And you have a baby. <laughs> All right, Gio, we know you. We've gotten to know you a little bit, but I'm going to ask you about your creative personality. What is a live event that you like to experience? I haven't been to a live event in eight months. Quarantine keeps getting longer and longer. You mean these Zoom events, these live Zoom events aren't your favorite? So I've been asked to direct so many. I just got an email this morning asking to direct one. Is the pay good? <sighs> no, that's no. <laughs> Nobody has money. No one has money right now. Museums, you can still do that safely. Music is much easier done outside the theater. And not outdoor theater, but theater in a room. A group of people being moved by the same story. That is something that is... If I could, I would. <laughs> if I could, I would. Yeah, totally. What is a piece of art that you like? I've always been into the Black Arts Movement era. That has always been a concentration of mine. And rediscovering some of Amiri Baraka's poetry has been fascinating. With this theater and racism course, I'm digging all of my files out and revisiting some of those things. If we're talking about art in that form, Amiri Baraka's poetry has been very invigorating for me. He's passed away. I met him twice. He wrote Dutchman. At that time, he went by Leroy Jones. He was like the poet laureate of New Jersey, and then 9-11 happened, and he wrote this controversial poem about 9-11, and they, they removed <laughs> they removed his, his title. I love that answer. I love that it's a poem. What keeps you motivated to keep working? I'm going to be that typical first-time parent and say, my daughter keeps me going. She does, but, but, but that's also kind of a lie. I would gladly give it all up, like all of the work up to be rich and just spend all of my time with her. But truly, you know, this, the need, the need right now, I have been asked to teach more and to create more. And I've decided that most, if not all of the work that I'm doing has to be in direct response to the unfortunate state of our country. And so, you know, teaching classes that only deal with playwrights of color or teaching students about recognizing the systematic racism that is embedded in our country's history, those things have to be a part of, of what I'm teaching. And so as long as those things keep happening, my people are being slaughtered by um, a faction that's supposed to protect and serve us. As long as those things are happening, I will teach what I teach the way I teach it. And so that really keeps me motivated and keeps, you know, pushing me. And even creating work outside of teaching, but even creating that type of work, even directing and acting in plays that deal with what, or, you know, whether it's auditioning for a TV show, looking for projects that deal with the here and now. Amazing. What kind of music do you listen to? Jazz is everything. The last piece of music that I selected to listen to was a Miles Davis CD. But 
a group that is forefront of my mind is Tank and the Bangas. So there's this song, Tank and the Bangas, called Roller Coasters. There's this woman, her family was displaced after Hurricane Katrina, grew up in Louisiana, and she uses jazz, poetry, and this R&B sound. It is the most eclectic, but the most satisfying thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Then there's Brittany Howard with Stay High, that single that came out not too terribly long ago. I mean, I'm all over the place. Hell, I was washing dishes the other night, and I was listening to a 90s R&B playlist. And so, so I mean, yeah, like <laughs> all, all, all the music. <laughs> with all the problems we have in the world, I'm so glad I live in an age of air conditioning, and I'm so glad I live in an age where you can literally listen to any and all music at any moment. <laughs> right, right. You don't have to wear out those five records that you have. You can, you know, press a button and you have all of it. Okay, all right. So now we've gotten your creative personality. So now onto your financial personality. Are you bad or good with money? I'm, I'm even. I tend to um, lean a little bit more on the bad side. <laughs> but I, I even out. And, and Ashley does phenomenally well with um i mean she's the reason we have a savings you know she does our taxes she minored in accounting if you look at my bookshelf you'll understand this but i am always buying fucking books i i i can't get enough and i don't even read them at a speed that i should be purchasing all these books but there's so much information out there and so, so I, I tend to spend a little bit more than I should sometimes, but she manages our finances a little bit better. And yeah, she keeps us on track. Okay. Well, I think you've sort of answered these questions by that first answer, but are you a saver or a spender? I am forced to save some, but I'm a spend. I'm a spender because also <laughs> I don't make enough money to be the type of saver that I should be. <laughs> You know, I mean, except for, you know, um, our daughter now, we we have set up or we have money for her college and future. We're starting that. We haven't put that somewhere, the place that it needs to be to grow and so she can prosper. But we have a system. We, we've started to grow toward a system. I think people sometimes set aside savings and savings even though everybody knows that you need to put it into the market or bonds or whatever in order for it to grow and not suffer from inflation. But setting it aside, even if it grows at zero, it's still setting like a chunk aside, which to me is important. If anyone's listening, thinking like, oh yeah, I really need to invest that thousand dollars or whatever. It's like, yes, you do. But also like you at least are saving a thousand dollars. So that's good. Right, right. And, and also before you can invest it to grow, it has to be it has to be worth a little something. We have 0.2 Bitcoins or something like that, and it's growing at a turtle pace. When we're trying to place her college fund somewhere, future fund, because uh, college, I have, even though I'm teaching at the college level, gone through an advanced degree through college, uh, college isn't for everyone. And college, uh, we won't get into the problem with college but anyway, um, getting the money there to where we can put it somewhere where it will grow at a, at a nice pace is important. Yeah. You know. Are you risk averse or a risk taker? I'm a risk taker. 
That's the problem, too. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a risk taker. I mean, you own 0.2 Bitcoins. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, did you have uh, good financial examples? No. No, not at all. Um, my, my family, both mom and dad's families, um, we, started, we started far behind when other folks were already running on their fourth lap. You spent money out of necessity and need, never out of want. And so we didn't have a chance to save. And um, my parents were always jumping around jobs. My mom has been more steady. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if people really realize, but growing up black is tough as hell sometimes. And there were a lot of opportunities that were not available to us. And then when I went to high school, well, actually middle school, but this affected me more so in high school. I lived in the, in the city, but there was a desegregation program that was enacted where high achieving minority students could go outside of their school districts into wealthier neighborhoods, which were mostly white neighborhoods to get a middle or high school education. But by the time I got to high school, I started doing things like choir that provided amazing opportunities for their students. You know, um, two years we went to Florida, one year we went to Colorado. Um, there have been times where the choirs have competed um, out of the country where they've flown, uh, but my mom would take on extra jobs or save for that only, and that would wipe out any type of savings account she had. Those things would always come up. Bills would always come up. Medical expenses would always come up. And so there wasn't savings. There wasn't any literacy on savings or, or investing your money. And so we, we lived paycheck to paycheck. That followed me into undergrad. I got in serious debt in undergrad with a credit card. You know, I don't know if you remember those folks that with the credit cards, they offer you a free pizza if you opened <laughs> up a credit card account. Yep. I fell for the okie doke and got the damn pizza. And then it's like, huh, I need a laptop. I won't trash the company on your podcast um, because maybe they'll sponsor you someday. Yeah. But, but, um, Doubtful. The, they, they had these shiny commercials that were like, oh, you can design your own laptop with us. It crapped out on me after about four months. I ended up paying about three to four times more than what that laptop was because I went into debt. Yeah, it was bad. I paid it off after living here. Yeah, so five years, four or five years later. Yeah. Because I didn't have the know or I didn't have the examples from family to teach me how to be financially responsible. Okay, amazing. And and I'm just going to go back on something you mentioned, which is growing up black. Because we're from Missouri, yeah, we're both from Missouri, we moved to New York. But I am from the white suburbs and you are from the black city. And for anybody who doesn't know, there's quite a history of racial segregation in St. Louis and around that area specifically. And redlining. And redlining. And a, and a phrase that everybody knows if you grow up in Missouri near St. Louis, everybody knows the phrase white flight. Yes, yes. And so if you don't know this phrase, just Google it. St. Louis will probably pop up at the top <laughs> of the list. And just read about it because it's a thing. Yeah. You know, and you and I are sort of like the opposite examples in a way of fitting into that 
history, which is hundreds of years old. Yeah, absolutely. Going on to this vein of uh, you were paying off a computer when you got to New York still, but at the start of your career, what did your finances look like? By that time, Ashley and I had gotten married. We were combining our finances and things like that. We were paying two rents. She stayed back in Springfield as our fall plan. You know, like if things don't work out, I can go back. I forged ahead here. And so we were paying rent in two places and that took a bit of our savings out. We had to start rebuilding six months later after she had gotten here. We both went in hard on the freelancing. So saving money wasn't big at that point until we both decided we needed a more steady paced job. I started working more full time at my position in security and then she got a full time job thereafter. We were doing all right. Yes, I still had student loans that I was paying for, but and rent here is astronomically ridiculous in this city. We were doing fairly well, but that was, of course, outside of the entertainment industry, which is actually what her main source of income is now. She works as an admin for a financial firm on the, the east side in Manhattan, and I was working for Hearst Security. But yeah, we were doing nice for a couple of years. And then I decided to go to grad school. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. But, okay. Oh, have you, yeah. either of you, have you had any health challenges? Not really. I mean, I do have sleep apnea, but we have insurance. And so, you know, insurance handles that. Although I have to call them today because... With COVID, they haven't renewed my, my stuff, and I need new equipment. But that's been, between the two of us, that's been the biggest thing, you know. When you have excess money, what do you do with it? So some, some paychecks came through finally. A majority of it went to bills, but um, I did put a few hundred into savings. Yeah, that was satisfying, I guess. Um because I have a family. Yeah. Our savings doesn't get as much love as it should, but we're always buying things that we need. And now that we have a baby, we're always buying things. But before that, student loans were taking off. Were you, were you paying off early or were you just paying the minimum? I was paying the minimum. How much student loans did you guys have? And then how much do you have to go still? Like if you pay the minimums, how long is it going to take you to finish it off? We were fortunate in that um, Ashley didn't have any student loans. My undergraduate student loans, believe it or not, are actually far more expensive than my graduate loans because I had a teaching fellowship. And actually, at Brooklyn College, my education was so much more inexpensive than um, the four-year degree at Missouri State University. I have $90,000 in student loans. That is because of interest. Education is so criminal, so criminal. You've had 90000 total, or you at this moment have 90000 At this moment. Jeez Louise. <laughs> the basic tuition at Missouri State University was 12000 a year. I can't blame Brooklyn College so much, because a lot of Brooklyn College was paid for. If you're looking without any help at Brooklyn College, you're looking at 10000 a year. It's all interest, which is criminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I don't even know where to go with that. Like, I just... <laughs> 
Uh, well, I'll have you. I'll have you back on the podcast when you pay it off. So, so that'll probably be in about thirty, forty. So Clemia will be like buying a house, maybe. Yeah, hopefully. yeah, right, right. Hopefully. Oh my goodness, yeah. Or maybe we can elect leadership that will eradicate these ridiculous student loan debts. I mean, for my now graduate programs, I was very lucky. You're looking at some graduate programs. Again, I won't name them because hopefully I'll get an opportunity to teach for some of these graduate programs or collaborate. But there are some of their students who are leaving their graduate programs 150000 in debt. I will call out Harvard only because Harvard has been brought up. Although, Diane Paulus, you can still hire me for a show. Um, please do. But the law came down on them because their students were just graduating with insurmountable amounts of debt. Yeah, you can hit it. You can hit it lucky or whatever in theater and become a Tom Hanks or something like that and have no problem paying off $200,000 of debt or something. But the flip side of me is like, why is that even allowed that somebody would have $200,000 of debt when they're graduating as an actor or a designer or a theater anything? Best case scenario, you're going to be making like a hundred and well, best case would be you get an artistic director job that pays a quarter of a million a year. That's like the best way, but realistically, you're going to be starting at 30,000. Um, and then, sort of, best case would be a hundred grand or 120 grand, but that only happens after tenure and promotion, believe it or not. Tenure is something that is being attacked right now, and a lot of professors, they're going to face challenges trying to get tenure and promotion. I know folks that are retiring as associate professors. Like, wait, what? You never made it to tenure? Why not? Yeah. Do you think or worry about money on a daily basis? It hasn't always been that case, but I do find myself doing it more and more because there were a few months where I was unemployed because of COVID. We're thinking ahead. The idea of at some point we need to buy a house or simply move apartments because this place is going to get too small. And so now, yes, every single day. There was probably a good 10 months when Ashley and I both were working full on jobs here and then it's like, okay, we're, we're doing good. I'm paying mm -hmm. the minimum student <laughs> loans. <laughs> yeah. Even though I, that, that little interest bug is in the back of my head and the credit cards were looking beautiful. But yeah, now, yeah, yeah, we do. I, I think about it every day. Gotcha. Um, throughout your guys' life, have you used a budget? Yes, but not in the way that you think. Not in pen to paper or um, a spreadsheet. Ashley is very good with about all of the bills. All the bills are set up in a pay system, and she knows when they're being taken. She knows how much will be out of the account, how much remaining we'll have for miscellaneous things that pop up or food and things like that so although i will say with food we don't prioritize the budget we go with what we need but if there's like a ethereal budget or an imaginary budget that all the payment plans and and systems are in place we do have that that's great yeah set it and forget it you're good to go yeah what is a fantastic financial decision that you've made the biggest one was my graduate degree it has helped me much more than anything else is that is that because you can now teach yeah 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 absolutely it's because i can now teach jobs and and teach at the level that i want to teach every single teaching job i've gotten every coaching job i've gotten is because of that but also the acting and directing jobs 
I came up here with little to no resources. Acting and directing is not always about talent. It's all about luck. I luck and opportunity. With my acting program here, I learn how to be the type of actor that I want to be or the foundation I'm still learning my artistry. But the connections, I have gotten so many connections, so many connections. I've been invited to three projects this week alone in quarantine just because of my connections here. Making the decision to pay for a graduate degree uh, has been the best financial um, decision I've made. I think that's good. That's a great answer. Wonderful. The flip side of that coin, what is a bad financial decision that you've made? I have my easy out just because we were talking about education. Um, I did not. I did not do undergrad the way that I was supposed to do it. I mean, I took classes that I didn't need to take. I damn near flunked out of my first semester because I had freedom and, you know, and I was hanging out and slept through classes and dropped classes, but I still had to pay for some of those classes. And I spent an extra year in undergrad. That was stupid on my part. Looking past that, can I, can I say something that would kind of be financially stupid? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but Ashley is much more resistant than I am, and so we haven't come to an agreement on it. I, I want to buy a car. I want to buy a car. and But it's stupid. In this city, you don't need to buy a car. Because, first of all, you have to pay for parking. If there's a parking lot near me, the minimum is $500 a month to pay for a parking lot. Quarantine makes me want to have a car. We haven't been on public transportation or even a car service since March. And we walk every month a mile to Clemmie's appointments, grocery stores and things like that. I mean, it's not as traumatic as it seems. No, it sounds fine to me. <laughs> but, but I want a car. I want to buy a car. Nice. Okay, do you have a retirement plan? And then what does it look like? I did, when I worked full-time in security, I did have a 401k. I mean, now I don't because I am technically a freelance worker. But did you get to keep whatever that money was? I did, I did, but it wasn't anything worth anything. It was minute. After eight years? No, no, no. I didn't start it. That was the problem. I didn't start it because the first few years I was still acting so technically I was working part-time but I was still working full-time because I would pick up hours so yeah that didn't happen for maybe the last couple of years but Ashley does have one with her job a 401k other than that we don't you know I mean she'll be fine I'll work until I'm dead well social security will probably be Gone. No, no, no. That's a, that's fear mongering. It's not going anywhere, baby. Yeah, I know, right? I know. Do you know anything about MMT? MMT? Modern Monetary Theory? No, I don't. Okay, well, it's the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just an economic thought that is gaining traction a little bit now because of COVID. It's been around forever. It has a solid argument that Social Security will not go bankrupt. Like, that is a fake thing for people to say. The government will always have money to pay its debts. MMT is complicated, so I never talk about it on the podcast, but I am interviewing a comic book illustrator because he knows all about MMT, so I'm going to I'm gonna have an episode on it because like, I just want it in people's brains. Oh, no, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that would be very informative. Ashley has a 401k. You do not. Um, you do have savings, and then you're setting aside college money for your daughter. So that's it. That sums up everything. 
You don't own like a house in the Hamptons or something? No, which no, I need to. I would love to. <laughs> Unless the lottery kicks in. We have nothing. Oh, and your point two bitcoins or point oh, zero oh, yeah, two yeah, yeah. bitcoins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about those. Yeah, the, the point zero yeah. Of all your jobs, which one has been the most financially lucrative for you? Teaching at uh, the City College of New York. Got it. Okay, great. Uh, regardless of money, uh, what job have you had that you're most proud of? It's truly the last job that I've done. It, it, it evolves. Um, I know that sounds like a cop-out answer, but just before all of this went down, I worked with a theater company in Vermont, JAG. We were doing JAG Fest 4.0 where they workshop new playwrights' works. Oh, to be a part of that work with what felt like a million um, black artists was phenomenal. We spent a week up in Vermont, up in the mountains, creating art from and for black people. Their art founding artistic director, his vision is phenomenal. I mean, what he's created there is out of this world. But then, on the educational side, creating this course entitled Theater and Racism has been something that I'm very proud of. I, I think I put together a really nice curriculum for that class. Um, okay, I was going to ask you about it later, but I will just now. So is that a new class, or have you been teaching that for a while? It, it, it's weird, because I've been teaching aspects of it for a while. There's always room for it in everything I teach. I talk to the head of City College, there needs to be a class, you know, you have these history classes on like black history in theater or, um, and that's great. There's room for that, but we need a class that deals with racism, but through the lens of theater. Um, this summer, I, I got to going from the ground up. I built this class that I took elements of what I teach in other classes and put it together in such a way that students are learning about racism through a theatrical lens, if you will. Um, and do you know, are other institutions doing it? I, I haven't seen evidence of that. I don't think so. Some theater schools may be bringing on people to do anti-racism training, which is good. Every company needs to do anti-racism training. That's not what this is. You can go into those anti-racism training and they're going to teach you how to be an ally or teach you about anti-oppression. And that's good. That's needed. We're taking a different approach in the way that we're looking at it more academically and then allowing the students the space to explore their own responsibilities within that system. And, but this also gives them the vocabulary to know what these things mean. And we're looking at stories that are written by people of color. We're looking at these stories and really diving into what these factions of racism look like from a person of color's point of view. I think that's really important to get the vocabulary because there are a lot of white people who I think are afraid to talk about racism in public. 
I think it's just because they don't have the vocabulary or the education. You're you're allowed to talk, but you just need to know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. That's and that's the thing. And and that's that's the thing that I provide space for all of my students to know that you are allowed to speak to it. But you know, more so than anything, it it, it helps the students identify practices in in this country. I mean, the first unit that we deal with in theater and racism is looking at housing discrimination. We were looking at a play. Okay, we can even use Raisin in the Sun. Most people know Raisin in the Sun. The white gentleman who comes in and says, the homeowners association wants to pay you off. And what we do is we unpack those things because we get little glimpses of it in the play and we know, oh, these things are wrong, but why are they wrong? We use that as a platform or as a springboard to talk about the bigger issue, which for that case would be HOAs. What about HOAs? What's wrong with HOAs? Well, HOAs are historically racist. And in fact, HOAs were built to discriminate. I brought in supplemental resources and found that just a couple of years ago in Florida, there was a newspaper article written about how an HOA used um, their rules to discriminate against an Asian couple just a couple of years ago. That's what the class is. In anti-racist training, there isn't room for that part of the discussion. Your greater question to answer that no, a lot of places aren't teaching this class. It's the first I've ever heard of it. And it's like, we need that. We just need it in the education. We need to not shy away from it, especially in theater and entertainment. A lot of liberal people work in these industries and everybody thinks they are progressive and up to date, but there's a lot that is not so. And as we know, liberal is much different than progressive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Do you have a professional network? Has it helped you make more money? And or how do you find your work? Uh, So I do, again, grad school. All of the artists there. I had a showcase, so I connected with industry people from that showcase. Um, Casting directors, my agent, which is a way to get work is through the agent that I have. When you say you have an agent, is that as a director or as an actor? As an actor. As an actor. And do you act now? Or do you direct mostly? It's weird because of COVID, but I'm directing more. I've always found it easier, and maybe it's because I'm not actively looking, but I found it easier getting directing jobs. You've touched on this a little bit. How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? I think that that there can be um, an even split there. Whenever I approach a project, I'm working hard on it. The opportunity to get seen for a project, the opportunity to interview for a project can sometimes be luck, but it also can be based off of the hard work on the last project or whoever refers me to a project is because they know my work ethic. But I do think that some opportunities, you know, you are lucky to get it because also Geo comes across the desk and then another person comes across the desk and Geo and this person have similar credits and they have stellar um, um, stellar recommendations. Who am I going to go with? That's the luck part of it. But then after that, my hard work has to speak for itself. Even the classes I'm teaching now, you know, met the head of one of the departments last year and he said, well, I don't have any classes for you to teach, but I know you direct our director fell through. Can you direct this play? And I said, yeah. And then the semester after he said, hey, you worked extremely hard 
for the department, and especially with COVID and all of that, you did a fantastic job. Here are two classes you can teach. It's a, it's a nice mixture. Futuristically speaking, you and I will be working on a play together. Absolutely. You'll be directing. I'll be lighting it. Yeah, And absolutely. I'm already dreading it because you're such a hard worker. <laughs> I know you're going to be the guy like texting me at 3 a.m. Be like, what about that light cue? Could we shorten it a little bit? Oh, oh you don't have any idea. I directed Dutchman. And I stayed in the theater with the lighting designer to get a moment right till like two in the morning. And, and, and not in a taskmaster way, it's because I love lighting, by the way. Lighting is, I'll take lighting over costuming, scenic, sound, because I love it so much. I try to make dreams come true. And I love lighting designers too. Not all lighting designers. I know a lighting designer who's lazy and he only uses the color blue and he only waits until he walks into tech to actually design the show. I'm not gonna say that you know that person either, but I'm gonna leave it there. <laughs> well, you actually just described a number of people, so. <laughs> <laughs> he know who he is. Um, if money wasn't an issue, what would your life's goal be? I would love to start a theater company with a theater, a full on working theater, a rep company by the way um have you ever seen the show um slings and arrows yes i have <laughs> it's yes yeah, it's, it's one of, I, I i first watched slings and arrows about 10 12 years ago i fell in love with that show maybe that's why people think i'm in love with shakespeare i would love to own and operate a company where you can you can pay artists a salary for a year and these artists are the artists that work on plays year round i think that's a system that happens in other places of the world but not here when i took a workshop with patsy rodenberg she spoke to something that happened like that in the uk a little bit why don't we have fucking rap companies with a set of rap actors not just active artists because then ashley and i have dreamed out loud about this we have a great big building or complex with multiple stages we would have a core group of artists who are all of our friends everyone would get a salary i don't know if i'm dreaming you'll get a salary of a hundred thousand dollars a year i know that's a lot for an artist right and your job as as an artist you know you know ethan you you have to light four of our shows in the season every year and that's your job as an artist and maybe assist on a couple of shows or do some other things, you know, because you're getting a hundred thousand dollars a year. You got to do some work, <laughs> but you know, but that's, that's the dream. That's awesome. I love that idea. What financial advice would you give yourself when you started out or would you give an actor or director who's starting their career right now? As far as education, take greater risk spend your money early and in new york or the whatever industry you want to work in that's where you get your education that's where you spend your money on education but also save more and, sp and so spending less money on frivolous things instead save that money but as far as education i value and love my experience from my undergrad but if that wasn't where I was going to be, I shouldn't have done that. I should have done it here. Is now a good time for students to be studying art? Yes, because now the filming industry is opening back up here in the city. These folks are spending millions upon millions of dollars for COVID prevention and things like that. But if we're looking at quarantine situation, now is the time to do all of that 
and worry about other things less because you have to keep prepping. If you're going into performance art, you have to keep prepping. You have to keep those tools sharp. So you may as well do it now while we have time. On a similar vein, big cities are artistic hubs. With the economy right now, should actors starting out right now, should they move to big cities? That depends on where they are financially. If you can afford it, then you probably should because you're going to jump on some cheap rent. You can start establishing that, but you also have to, I mean, you also have to pay the bills, I guess. If you can't afford it, if you have no money, don't go to those big hubs because it's going to be tough. It's already tough when you move to a big city and, you know, you go through a lot, go through a lot of changes. You learn about yourself. So, um, so use this time to stay home and save. Are you in any unions? Yes and no. <laughs> I'm in the stage director's union. I am in the EMC program for the um, Actors' Equity. What is the EMC program? It's um, Equity Membership Candidate. If I were to take another equity show, then I would join. It means that I've done equity productions, but I haven't committed to Actors' Equity. Whereas the stage directors, I'm in their associate program, stage directors and choreographers society. Are you trying to get another acting job in equity or are you like, hey, if it happens, it happens. If not, whatever. No, I am trying. That's the goal. It should have happened by now, but COVID season came in. There's much more stability there. I mean, it's not going to guarantee me a job, but I can at least get a better grade of jobs. I have agents who can also you know get me get me appointments i'll say that appointments to get jobs um or to audition for jobs but yeah um i don't know if you have an answer for this one but what can you and i do to stress the importance of finance or savings to our fellow artists well the first thing i mean you're doing it already which is uh podcast one of my goals on the education side is to become a faculty member in a actor training program like a full-on actor training, like your BFAs or your MFA programs or conservatory-style trainings. What I can do is um, make sure that financial literacy classes available that can bring in folks, because that was one of the things that I think we missed. There was no, no one that could come in and talk to us about financial literacy and becoming a responsible financier, or not financier, but well, for your own personal finance. Education spends so much time on all of these math classes you have to do and things like that, but they spend very little on personal finances, which is something that is the most important thing for all people and not just artists. And so if you can keep talking about it on your podcast, I think that's a start. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, final questions. What separates those who have a career in the arts versus those that never try it or maybe transition to something else? Well, the the person in the middle is the most unfortunate person, I would say. Because even if you go throughout a program in the arts or not, or if you start and then you change, one of the things that art teaches is empathy. Empathy is the biggest thing if everyone had those skills, if you will. I've been in programs with people that share views with me, but that have also been on the other spectrum of those things and are 
completely conservative and I think that the only way that they could empathize and understand my viewpoint and me and theirs as well is because the space that creative arts allow you it opens something up I'm starting work for a coaching company we go into businesses and coach their people on how to become much more effective communicators how to build tools to for all of these business people that have never had the opportunity that we get all the time in the arts to evaluate our work on a on a on a creative level or on a personal level being more introspective these tools that we get I, I see some of these people and I say they don't know anything about themselves first of all of course they can't empathize with any other folks I did some training and watched somebody um, coach it's like oh wow you're working on the marketing team and you're selling the pitch and, and their pitch was taking this program to an old folks home when she started talking about her grandmother and how she wished she could have been there with her grandmother in her last days and had a program like this to help her um, was like, that's the part that you're missing. The coach had to help her get there, not use her experience, but share her experience to make her much more effective in her job as a marketing person giving a pitch to a company. Every single person on this earth has to go through some type of artistic or creative training of sorts to become empathetic people who can also look into themselves, who knows how to look within themselves to find that empathy for other people. I love it because we're all humans. Everybody who watches a movie or a TV show or a show, if they just think, how would I do it differently? That's an exercise in you have artistry and you have an aesthetic and all that just because you don't tune into it ever it's, it's there absolutely absolutely and i mean look if we didn't have the art keeping us going through quarantine i think that unfortunately the suicide rate would be greater yeah yeah so this episode is coming out october 5th tomorrow october 6th you are starting a scene study from the bipoc perspective course I, I highly doubt any of our listeners will want to join, <laughs> but is it too late for them to join and or sort of what is that course about and who is it tailored to? Is it just actors? The first question is, it is for actors because we're doing the work that actors do, looking at scenes and approaching it from an actor or the work that actors do on plays. It, it's not too late to sign up. If you don't make it to the first session, then that's fine. There are a bunch of other sessions. And it's for any actor. One of the things I want to say is that it's for all actors of all races. There was a confusion because someone said, well, you know, I see that you're talking about the biopic point of view and their stories. So um, me as a white actor, can I take it? Yes. Yes. These playwrights write for everybody. They write because guess what? especially when we're looking at the black experience, is the American experience. The one singular thing that is different is that I've never been in an acting class, nor has anybody that I've spoken with, and that, and that was a great deal of people, been in an acting class that have dealt with all playwrights of color. You know, we were joking earlier about <laughs> old white men. It's oversaturated. I was the only black actor in um, acting program and undergrad in my class. I never worked on a play by a black playwright. And I didn't, I didn't get to explore my stories like my white peers were. 
there were black playwrights that wrote plays and scenes for black and white students. And so I didn't understand why I couldn't do that. I was told, well, it's because we don't want it to become about race. I said, what, wait, what, the human race? Because, you know, it was, it was white men that sectioned us off. But that's neither here nor there. So I started using this model a few years ago when I started teaching scene study. First, it was playwrights of color and women because white women rarely had space in those scene study classes as well. Then I went to all people of color. All of my students, including white students, we had appropriate material for everyone. I realized, huh, these stories sometimes are actually stronger because they're dealing with the here and now. And especially with folks in New York City, it deals with a lot of the themes these students are, are experiencing in their everyday life. When I approach acting, it is important to understand the self first. You have to know the self before you can approach this world. If I'm looking at, say, a Tennessee Williams play, Streetcar Named Desire, this play that's happening in Louisiana, I'm probably not going to connect to that as much as I will, say, Choir Boy, written by Terrell Alvin McCraney. That's much more in line with my experience. Terrell Alvin McCraney wrote a white teacher into that. And I can guarantee you that my white student in class may connect to that play much more than they would the Tennessee Williams play who wrote about all white people. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to break down scenes and things like that from that point of view, and mainly because we're looking at contemporary things. Now, if I were to broaden that and teach a class on modern American realism, then of course I'm looking at Tennessee Williams and William Inge and things like that, but I'm looking at that for a more stylized approach. You say contemporary, so are you doing like stuff that's in the last 10 or so years? Yeah, usually folks, when they say contemporary, they mean like after 1950s, after 1960s, but nah, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to look at things. Um, some people are doing the last 30 years in their classes. I'm attempting to do the last 10 years. I am not an actor, but I think it would be a really interesting class. I'm not going to take it, <laughs> but like, I'm sort of like, you know, it's just, it's just interesting because it's the same thing we always do, but just making sure there's an emphasis on you. Yeah. So I, I'm not an actor, but if there's any actors listening, it's a remote class. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's actor training. It's actor training. The stories are just a little better in my opinion. <laughs> oh, wait, let me amend what I said. If there's any white actors that are interested in it, I think they should jump in because I feel like a class with you would just be, once again, a way to get vocabulary, a way to get your your brain frameworked into another person's view. I think it'd be helpful. I think it's interesting. Thank you. I agree. Last question for you. Where can people find out more about you? My website is um, an introduction. <laughs> the other way is to contact me and I'll tell you everything you need to know about me. <laughs> no. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, a okay. uh, starting place is my website. GiovandeJones.com. Yes. I'll put a link for it. Gio, thank you so much for sitting and giving us this time. Yeah, no, absolutely, Ethan. It was great to catch up with you. That was our interview with Gio Jones. My takeaways were save money for yourself. Whether it is to move, pursue an acting career, or raise a child, it never hurts to save something for yourself. Student loans. They add up and they are a part of this American life. But they will stay with you until you can pay them off. And just like a mortgage, you'll end up paying more in interest than the amount of money you borrow. Work hard. Gio moved to New York to pursue acting and directing, 
and has hustled the entire way. He dedicates himself to the projects he works on, to his family, and to the students he teaches, and he does it all in an uplifting way. Thank you for listening to our conversation. I hope you found it useful. And thank you to Gio for his time. Even though this episode was just an hour, the conversation we had was more than three hours long. If you want to hear more of our chat, please visit patreon.com slash artisticfinance, where I've posted the rest of the interview. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu.